Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ivor Jersey joins us now. Uh, as the Federal Reserve wraps up a two-day meeting in Washington, he's a rate strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence and is in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, I regret to speak with you. Let's, uh, let's set the stage here for this meeting. Day two of the meeting <laughs> begins shortly. What are you expecting to, to come out of it? What's this Fed weighing? What's it looking at over the course of this two-day meeting? Yeah, so, so I think it's going to be weighing uh, you know, what new risks have been created, uh, firstly, since the last meeting. And, and then secondly, and, and I think this is going to be more closed door, and, and the minutes of this meeting might be more interesting than today's statement, but about how monetary policy and their balance sheet is going to continue to, uh, to develop over time. So one of the surprises from the March meeting was that they had significant discussion about how the how their balance sheet was going to develop, and they said it during that uh, during that meeting that hey, we want to uh, reduce both our treasury holdings and our mortgage holdings. And I think to, for some people, and, and me included, quite frankly, that that was a little bit surprising because eventually we know they want to go back to a treasury only portfolio. Mm. Um, but you know now they they want to shrink their balance sheet altogether. Ira Jersey with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Tom Keen in our Bloomberg 991 studios uh, in Washington. I'm here. Uh, along the FDR, looking out across the East River, Tom, oh. ferries crossing from Williamsburg. I'm having a Walt Whitman Ferry moment here. Across <laughs> the Mersey. No, it's a different song. It's a different river. How you doing? Oh, we're very good. It was it, truly, folks, in in the many years, well over a decade of coming down here uh, and doing Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Last evening, David Gura was the most pleasant evening. Uh, I've ever had in Washington. The weather was perfect. Uh-huh. We sat on 15th Street outside and, and had dinner. It was partly cloudy with a 30% chance of shutdown. That's <laughs> 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 sort of where I was yesterday. Ira Jersey. I'd say, I'd say that's a pretty good assessment, Yeah, Tom. pretty that's good. About 30% was where I would put it, too. <laughs> Review for our audience what the bond market does when, when S&P and Moody's begin to worry about a quote-unquote Shut down. Yeah, I mean, one of the ironies is is that uh, rates probably uh, probably rally, so you get lower yields uh, in an environment where the government looks like it might shut down. I mean, for one thing, uh, we'd be worried about economic growth. There'd be a flight to quality risk assets like uh, you know corporate bonds and equities probably don't do great in that environment. But um, but at the same time, I, I think. You know, one of the things that we learned from some of the uh, the past uh, shutdowns and, and other debt ceiling related crises is that it, you know we come to the brink, but then eventually you know cooler heads prevail and we we wind up yeah. avoiding the worst disasters. So, um, so at the end of the day, it winds up being a blip on a lot of the charts that we look at. But it's it is something though that is worrying because you always have this danger when you go to the brink that someone might actually fall off or that you know everyone might fall off, and that that's the danger and yeah. that's what the market ends up pricing for. 
for, even if it, the likelihood of that actually occurring is pretty low. Someone editorialized it's a comedy act. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Ira Jersey with us with Bloomberg Intelligence in New York. Great guests to come up, including Bill Dunkelberg testifying today on uh, the Hill. We'll have a good conversation with him uh, as well. Bloomberg surveillance this morning from Washington and from New York. Ira Jersey, when I want to analyze the bond market, and I want to say what the real rate is when I take a given interest rate and subtract inflation, which maturity do I use to get to that real rate? Do you use the five-year, the two-year, the coming 50-year bond? Which do you use? <laughs> yeah, well, it depends on what you're, uh, what you're trying to, uh, to accomplish. I mean, one of the nice things is now is that we have the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, or TIPS market, which uh, does that for us, so we don't have to. So if you have, say, a 10-year time horizon until you have some event, you know, maybe, uh, maybe sending your kids to college, maybe it's retirement, it depends on where you are in your, in your life cycle. <laughs> yeah. um, but if you have a 10-year horizon, then obviously you want to look at the 10-year now, the, the, the danger with looking at nominal U.S. Treasuries and then subtracting what inflation is today from that is that there's no guarantee that inflation is going to stay where it is. It could be much higher. It could be much lower. So one of the things that the tips market does is says, OK, what is what is the market's expectation of where um, of where interest rates will be after you're accounting for inflation? And right now, that's around 0.3 uh, percent, so not particularly high, um, but that is much higher than it was um, than it was last summer uh, or, or prior to the election when it was at zero. You expected the real interest rate uh, the market was expecting prior to Donald Trump's election was zero. So you were expecting only to make inflation. Uh, today, it's a little bit more than inflation. So you have some risk premium uh, returning to the market. And uh, it, it's lower than it was uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it's still um, a positive number. Um, now, that's been as high as almost 1% in, mm. in, you know, a, a decade ago, but not since the crisis have you seen it up near those levels. Tom made a joke there about the 50-year bond, but of course, the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin in conversation with our Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite at the Milken Institute Global Conference this week alluded to the fact that he's seriously considering a, a bond of that, of that length. How, how does that play out? As he considers that, how does that play out in the bond market? Are there people who would buy these things? Well, I think there would be people who buy these things. I think one of the one of the ironies is is that a 50-year bond in terms of actual interest rate risk does not give you much more than a 30-year. So one of the arguments in the past when, when the government's talked about doing an ultra-long bond was to, you know, instead of doing a 50-year, why not just increase the amount of 30-year bonds that you uh, that you issue? Well, uh, so so that, that is certainly a possibility. Um, but if 50-year bond adds uh, adds a lot of what's called convexity risk. So it's really how much um, how much risk changes with a change in, in yield, and um, and and that's very high for a 50-year bond. So there are people who would want to buy it. There are pensions and, and other asset liability managers um, like insurance companies who would find it uh, very intriguing. It would also be a benchmark for corporations, and I think that that's another important aspect of having a, an ultra-long potentially is that it allows for a benchmark yield um, to be traded against other assets. So then when corporations, if they want to issue 50-year bonds, um, th there'll be something to, uh, uh, to benchmark and also hedge the interest rate exposure there. So, so there are certain benefits. At, on the other side, you know, they've talked about this. This is, you know, I've been doing this 20-odd years, and this is about the fourth time that they've talked about doing an ultra-long bond. Um, but this time it might actually happen just because that is something that the Treasury Department can do unilaterally. They don't have to go to Congress and say, hey, you know, can we get permission to do a 50-year bond? They can just do it. 
What do you expect? To, again, you're talking about we might hear more in the more in the minutes than any other color we'll get after the, the meeting today. When you look to those minutes, what do you think you're going to see about how this Fed is regarding the potential for for some sort of new fiscal policy uh, in Washington? Yeah, you know, one of the things that they have to take into account is what uh, if the potential fiscal policies uh, go into effect and you get tax cuts, that could be additive to growth. So that's a risk on the upside. I think, though, in the minutes, they'll try and be very cautious because they don't yeah. want to kind of upset the political establishment and upset the president. The, you know, the worst thing for them would be to have a couple of angry tweets. Um, on TV just a little while ago, Tom brought up a uh, a newspaper article with all of the tweets from the first 100 days. And, you know, you don't want 10 of those from about the Fed if you're if you are the Fed. That's a new play, 12 Angry Tweets. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, you see it front and back. It's like a whole broadsheet of the Washington uh, Post in its actual tweets. And, David, the bonus round is they've even gone in and they show the deleted tweets with a line through them. So, like, he had a tweet about Abe out playing golf with Ernie Els, uh-huh. and then he deleted that one. But they sh- it's really well done. I mean, it, it, it's a statement for, you know, in support of the president, it is a new communications mechanism. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. He's embraced it. To, yeah, I'll say, you see what he's done over 100 and some days, and that doesn't even get to the tweet-a-thon this morning, whatever yeah. the theme uh, maybe I would suggest, David, the theme in Washington uh, is uh, about Trump care and Obamacare late last night, working away, trying to get those votes. Joining us in our 99.1 studios in Washington Jim Jordan. It is James Daniel Jordan, but he wants to be called Jim or he'll put me in a wrestling lock. Wonderful wrestler out of Wisconsin. And with the most interesting gerrymander district in the history of Ohio, you go from the farming communities of Western Ohio all the way over. And as a gift to your Madison University of Wisconsin heritage, they gave you the People's Republic of Of Oberlin. What was the first visit to Oberlin like? So I I go there when I first get to that that part of the, and good to be with you, Tom, They, they uh, they had a, uh, a League of Women Voters meet the candidate kind of debate. And I walk in and I go up to the table to say hello. And, and they, the, the, the ladies there kind of registering people in look up at me and they go, wow, we didn't think you would show up. And I, yeah, of course I'm here. I, I'm, I understand I'm not, not going to get any yeah. votes here. But in fact, I lost yeah. a precinct there like 300 and some to five. Good, good I need effort. to meet these five people, right? Good effort. Yeah. Though the, they were the, the wrestling team yeah, at exactly. Oberlin. Uh, we'll get to your wrestling at Claim here as we can. And we'll fit in on another <laughs> visit. Front and center right now. And you are front and center right now in this issue of Obamacare. Yeah. Obamacare repeal and Trump care. How are you going to wrestle moderate Republicans <laughs> to a vote? Well, we're, we think we got the bill in a pretty good position, but I, I'm always always straightforward with the American people. It's not full repeal like we told them we were going to get, but it's the best bill we think we can get out of the House right now. And the Freedom Caucus, us conservatives, are, are supporting the legislation. So hopefully we'll get a vote this week. Um, we'll see. I hope it happens today or tomorrow, and we can uh, begin to get it over yeah. to the Senate and continue to work on it, but we'll see. Let me bring in my colleague in New York, David Gura. David? Yeah, give me a sense here, Congressman Jordan, if you would, of, of what the, the Freedom Caucus stands for. We talk about the Freedom Caucus in the context of health care and tax. Yeah. What are the, the driving principles of it? We hear about the Freedom Caucus and the Tuesday group, all these different factions. Freedom what Caucus. does the Freedom Caucus stand for? Real simple. Our mission statement talks about the countless number of Americans who feel like Washington has forgotten them. Our job is to remember them. 
and fight for them to do it in a productive and a tactically and, and strategically um, smart way, but to fight for them. And that's what we do. We're obviously from the conservative side of the Republican Party, but uh, it's interesting to mix. We have some libertarian-leaning folks in our group and then more traditional conservatives, but that's our mission statement. We think we think the, you know, so many people in this town get forgotten, and those those connected classes get the special deals at the expense of regular American families, and so our job is to fight for them. And right now we're in the midst of a tax reform debate and health care debate and, another, uh, and, and several other uh, important issues. How much sympathy do you have for the House Speaker, Paul Ryan, at this point, dealing with your group, dealing with the Tuesday group, dealing with all of these different factions? It's a tough the job. Yeah. I said the same thing about Speaker Boehner. His district was adjacent to ours. Uh, and, you know, I never criticize these guys in, in a public way because I know how tough their job is. Uh, you know, you got as you said, you got to deal with. Uh, think about what Speaker Ryan has to deal with. He's got to deal with Pelosi. He's got to deal with, uh, you, you know, Schumer on the other side, and he's got uh, uh, the the Tuesday group and folks like us. So it's it's a it's a tough job uh, corralling all that and getting things done. I understand that, but that doesn't change what we're about. Our our mission is real simple: do what we told the voters we were going to do. Uh, we make this job way too complicated. Our our job is to you know, do what they sent us here to accomplish. The president loves to go out to the fabric of the Ohio's of America and act like one of the guys. He could go to St. St. Mary's. He could go to Graham High School where you were as a wrestling star. Come on. He's a Fifth Avenue plutocrat from New York City. How does he resonate in your district? Because he has this uh, conservative principles but a populist tone to him. Uh, One of the things I always tell is back in August when we opened up our party headquarters in Lima, Ohio, where uh, I know, Tom, you have some roots, um, we had this gentleman walk up to me after we'd done the speeches and all and kind of opened up the headquarters back in in the campaign. He walked up and I hadn't seen him before. And I I felt like I know every Republican in, in, in Allen County. He walked up to me and he got right to me. He didn't even say hello. He just looked at me and goes, I'm a union pipe fitter. I'm voting for Donald Trump, and I don't care what my union leadership says. They ain't talking me out of it. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, good for yeah, you, but, dude. But this is critical. That's what, that Your was the connection. Your father was that guy, Exactly right. right. Your Ex- father was that guy. Exactly the, right. The disaffected Democrats who came over to Reagan. Can this guy build, can the president of the United States build a general coalition? I think so. With a, oh, come on, with a cacophony I've seen in the last 48 hours in this city? Well, he did it. He did, He built that. I mean, think about what happened in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin through the upper mid. West, that, just like that union pipe fitter, and just like my dad back in 1980, who was a union uh, Democrat from uh, who worked in Dayton, Ohio, for GM. In 1980, my dad said, "To heck with this! I'm going to vote for I'm going to vote for Ronald Reagan," mm-hmm. and he's been a conservative Republican ever since. That same dynamic was taking place in Ohio. I think we can build on that, and that's what we should be. We're 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 supposed to be that conservative party, but but with a populist tone to our principles. And I think Donald Trump was able to, uh, to capture that, and hopefully continues. Congressman Jordan, I talked to former Senator Bill Bradley earlier. Uh, in the week. He wrote a piece for the New York Times about when he did tax reform yeah. alongside Republicans back in 1983, 84, 85, and then 86 when, when sure. it got passed. And he said that, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase what he said, but there's a sense that y- there aren't deals being made in Washington anymore. Is that because lawmakers are unwilling to make deals with each other or they don't know the art of deal making? Uh, are we at a place where we, we can't see the kind of collaboration that we saw in years past. It is, it is, you know, partisan. I mean, I, I sense that when I, I, I served in, this, in the state legislature back home before I came to Congress, and the partisan intensity is is strong. But I do still think you can work together. I always tell folks, um, a guy I used to work with, and we're about as far apart as you can be, is Dennis Kucinich. Dennis mm. is a friend, uh, but. 
where you can find common ground with someone like Dennis and I is is typically not on the spending, the taxing, and some of those issues, but on uh, but on like civil liberty issues. So I try to work with them when I can. But you're right; it's a pretty partisan environment. Um, you know, I think sometimes yeah. we Republicans say that's Democrats' fault, and they say it's our fault. But it is that is the situation. Can't even agree but, on that. <laughs> yeah, but the fiscal the fiscal yeah. <laughs> mix now is different. You talk about your father and President Reagan, that was 33% debt to GDP. President Trump enjoys 100 and some percent one to one, yeah. of debt to, to, to GDP. What's the common ground you need, for an example, with Senator Schumer? Yeah, um, I think this is where it's difficult because we actually believe you should um, – your tax dollars should be spent on national defense. We think we need, a, we need to plus up that. But we also understand we've got a $20 trillion debt, and we need to cut spending elsewhere. Democrats well, always want to spend elsewhere okay. and not, not on national defense. We've had this, this idea that both grow over the last several years, and we get to a $20 trillion debt. I understand debt. that Lima, Ohio is a sanctuary city. Lima, it's New Lima, York City. Lima. Lima, excuse me. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's my mother's accent. What can I say? <laughs> Help me here. With, is New York City a sanctuary city? Is a guy like you, with your leadership from a broad swath of Ohio, going to tell me New York City or Boston I is a sanctuary city? I think we should have city? sanctuary cities. I, I think that's something we should have went after in this budget. Uh, this spending bill that's that's due to be voted on this week, um, that's one of the frustrations and why you're going to see a bunch of us conservatives n- not not support the legislation because we're not doing what we told the voters. Why would we why would we take a spending bill that was that was due last year? So after the election, we said we're going to kick this short term spending bill into we'll go out four months mm-hmm. so that we can when the cavalry gets here, when we have the White House, the, the House and the Senate, then we can deal with the issues we campaigned on. If we weren't going to deal with those issues now. Then why in the heck right. did we do the short-term spending bill? That's Dave, that's a frustration. David, one more jump in. Yeah, real quick. So, so I'm taking from that you're not going to support this bill. No, no, absolutely not. And and and, and you're, there's going to be a bunch of conservatives who aren't going to support this. And bill how did you react to the president's tweet yesterday? He called a shutdown perhaps a good thing in September. You agree with him that maybe that'll be a. A, device, I, a motivating device? I think we got to do what we told the American people we were going to do, what they sent us here to do, what we campaigned on. I'm not for a shutdown, but if that's where it leads, when you're fighting for – if Chuck Schumer thinks it's more important to shut down the okay. government than to, than to do what we told the American people we're going to do, I'll take that debate any day. And that's, if that's where we wind up, that's fine. But I know. I, we don't continue, please. Well, I'm just saying we need to do what we said. We make this job way, way too complicated. What do we, what do we campaign on? For example, this health care, repealing Obamacare, it was a central issue in the 10 campaign, the 2014 campaign, and, of course, in the election on November 8, 2016. Can you get it done Friday? I think we can get it done this week. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful we can. Okay, I've got some advice for you. It's, right. it's uh, David, you're going to love this. I can't wait, uh, This Tom, is very important wait. from the AAU wrestling manual, which uh, <laughs> the congressman memorized. Symptoms may include dizziness, stunned or dazed initially, <laughs> headache, concentrating problems, feelings of having their bell that, rung that do last more than 30 seconds. That, that would be the moderate Republicans, yeah, right? Well, well, I was thinking you were describing Congress, but not a wrestling match. But, is, uh, <laughs> Jim Jordan of Ohio, stay with us, Worldwide Coast. Coast to coast, this is Bloomberg. David, the weather here is spectacular. If if Washington was like this 10 months of the year, I'd be here in a heartbeat. Gorgeous. <laughs> Unfortunately. And then there's not. August. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> 
Our next guest has made a pilgrimage from East Hill in Ithaca, where he is the uh, Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University, the author of a great book, Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renminbi, uh, to our Bloomberg Breakaway Conference uh, in New York City. Ishwar Prasad uh, with us here uh, in New York. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, there's been a lot of conversation about North Korea on the foreign policy front and the degree to which China could do more, wield more economic influence to make North Korea do more. What tools does it have at its disposal? What has China not been doing when it comes to North Korea? China, in my view, could be doing a lot more about North Korea. The question is whether they want to do much more, because the reality, in my view, is that it helps China to convey this notion that North Korea is very difficult to control. But the reality is that uh, China is the economic lifeline for North Korea. Um, North Korea is an economy, uh, has an economy that really cannot sustain itself. And if China were to choke off uh, uh, its exports to North Korea or choke off uh, uh, access to its markets, North Korea would implode economically. So they do have a lot of control. But the reality is that instability in North Korea certainly would not serve China as well. Uh, So what they're trying to do is sort of keep it simmering try to manage the problem as best as possible, but not really put the choke on North Korea. If they wanted to, my view is they could. I don't think we've spoken since that summit in Mar-a-Lago when when President Trump and President Xi met there uh, for the first time. What's your takeaway from an economic sense of how that meeting went? We've seen uh, the Treasury Department say that China is in fact not manipulating its currency, the President affirming that, uh, affirming it before the Treasury Department even had a chance to to do it. Uh, How's the economic relationship between the two countries at this point? The 100-day plan is clearly a way for both countries to sort of uh, declare some level of victory in the sense that they managed to um, avoid any serious conflict. And it's a face-saving way for both Trump and Xi Jinping to claim victory. What I suspect will happen at the end of the 100 days is that China will say that it is going to give the U.S. a little more um, access to its markets, give U.S. investors, especially U.S. financial firms such as insurance companies, a little more access to investment opportunities in China and um, stop intervening as much in foreign exchange markets. These are all things that China had committed to do a long time ago and is probably going to do anyway, but this provides a good way for uh, diffusing the tensions between the two countries. The country has cut back on industrial overcapacity. This is something the previous administration here in the U.S. have been pushing for, for for a very long time. Is that a signal to you that China's sense of its own economy or the deficits within its own economy are becoming more apparent that they're doing more to to correct them? Uh, China recognizes very much that the amount of investment that it's been putting in place is certainly not good because it's not well-allocated investment. You're still having a lot of the investment being undertaken by large state-owned enterprises Mm -hmm. financed by a not very efficient uh, state-owned banking system. And in certain industries such as steel, uh, cement and so on, there is clearly a lot of excess capacity. The difficult balancing act that China faces is, is that it cannot afford to let investment, especially infrastructure investment, slow down in terms of growth too soon. Mm. So they're trying to manage the problem in the typical Chinese way, not by letting the markets work their magic, but essentially having the government manage even the reduction in overcapacity. Are we letting the markets work their magic in the United States of America? There's a great mystery to the lack of investment here. What say you on that from the international prism that you have? 
perhaps markets once upon a time here worked a little too well, Tom. Um, yeah. The uh, difficulty here from the point of view of uh, um, the U.S. economy and its long-term growth prospects is really tied to the low levels of investment, which we don't have very good answers for. I mean, um, the big corporations are certainly sitting on a lot of cash. Even small and medium enterprises are facing slightly easier uh, credit conditions right now. But I think the um, uh, policy uncertainty right now, especially on the regulatory front, but also the broader macroeconomic policy uncertainty, which still hasn't completely uh, been eliminated despite decent growth, I think is holding back investment. And then, of course, productivity growth has been um, remarkably slow. And that also does not necessarily uh, augur well for investment. I don't think, although the economists have been stumbling around for a while, we don't have a good answer yet to why productivity growth in this expansion has been that slow. Uh, but unless you can get productivity growth going in the U.S., it's very hard to think of Trumpian growth rates uh, of 3 to 4 percent. Realistically, 2 percent is probably what the U.S. economy can achieve unless by miracle uh, productivity growth picks up. Ishwar, great to see you, uh, as always. Ishwar Prasad, the Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University. Of course, he was former head of the IMF's China Division, author uh, of the book Gaining Currency, The Rise of the Renminbi. Uh, do check out his interview with uh, Tom and Francine Lapa from earlier today uh, on Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Television. You can see that on the Bloomberg Terminal, or of course at Bloomberg.com uh, as he makes his way uh, down to Washington, D.C., where you are, uh, and back to Ithaca, New York, where, of course, I spent many happy years, yeah. Tom. Uh, you're preparing for your interview with Ben Bernanke. What, what's, uh, what's high on the agenda for you? High on the agenda is who will run the Fed after Chair Yellen. That will be one of our first questions. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. French Hill is from a normal congressional district, as you say, central Arkansas. It doesn't look as gerrymandered as the disaster Jim Jordan has up in Ohio. Yeah. But what I do know is you hear the complaint always, folks, I just wish we had people that understood economics. He is out of Vanderbilt economics with legit economic cred, including working for George Herbert Walker Bush. French Hill is the congressman. From Arkansas, you're up until midnight last night burning the health care oil. <laughs> Let's frame first. Are you a moderate or a conservative on Obamacare repeal and the new Trump care? Where do you fit in? I think I fit in that I'm a, a conservative uh, person who wants to see the failings of the Affordable Care Act repealed and replaced with something that works for the American people. You know, Arkansas is a Medicaid expansion state, so that has to be taken into account. 
Arkansas is a poor state, uh, so that has to be taken into account. And uh, for the last five weeks, we've had a work in progress where we take a couple of steps forward and one back. Congressman Hill, I spoke with Mark Bertolini yesterday, the CEO, chairman and CEO of, of Aetna, after that company released its earnings. Uh, it is now in only three Affordable Care Act markets that pulled out of Iowa uh, last month. And I asked him what his message would be to, to lawmakers like you on Capitol Hill, and he said the only way to fix this thing is to do it in a bipartisan way. Is there any hope of that happening, do you think? Well, I think in the Senate that will be essential. Uh, I think in the House we'd like to get the best plan that deals with uh, – what we think are the failings in the law, put it together, send it to the Senate, and then that will put together, I think, a bipartisan approach to try to get something to President Trump that repairs this this failing law. I want you to know, David, that I'm looking down at the super triple top secret documents of Congressman Hill, <laughs> and I see his whip list wrapped under his acclaimed <laughs> Bloomberg security badge. Fortunately, my eyesight is like, my eyesight is like Andrew Jackson's, and there's no risk of secrets let out. David, continue. Congressman French, we were talking with Jim Jordan, your, your colleague, just a, a few minutes ago, of course, the founder of the House Freedom Caucus, and we were kind of going through all the different caucuses in the House right now. Is it too disparate at this point? Is, is it is it too hard for House leadership, for the Republican leadership to get all these groups together? Do you wish there was a little bit more unity among your party? Well, it's always nice to have uh, unity, but I'll tell you, the best ideas come with hard work and discussion, and diversity of view is a positive thing. We, we have a very diverse uh, continental nation of 300 million people, and so we aren't a monolithic mm-hmm. people. And having that diversity of view, both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, is good for the voters, good for the citizens. I think the fact that this has slowed down and caused members to talk to each other and come up with solutions, like the proposal on pre-existing conditions by taking into account what's happened successfully in Maine, is the way you get the best ideas. Let's switch gears here. Um, You survived a town hall meeting uh, here a week ago or so. I don't don't make all my questions up. I mean, I get a lot of help on them. Allison from Little Rock is going to help me right now. Congressman French Hill, I want to know what you Republicans are going to do to try to control our crazy president. What leader? That's from Allison at your town hall meeting. What'd you answer to her about getting 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue lined up with the political and civic process? Right. Good question. She asked a good question. Senator Cotton and I had a thousand People in a hotel ballroom. We had a great uh, hour and a half. Uh, Beverages were served. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. I went through two bottles of water, but that was about it. Uh, but it was great, and the conversation was good, and we touched on everything. And one of those things was people's concerns about uh, President Trump and the fact that he's new to the process, mm-hmm. the fact that he's uh, an iconoclast, that he's a maverick in the true sense, that he's not following a script that people are accustomed to. And what we said is, look, the power of the purse rests with Congress. Congress will her, – her question started out both on foreign policy and on budget policy, and the, they were concerned about some of the president's uh, budget, budget priorities. Those come to the House and the Senate, and they're reviewed and dispatched by the members of Congress. So one thing is that the Congress does have the power of the purse and the 16 words of the Appropriations Clause. So when it comes to spending, right. that's the job of Congress. One other question, if I may, before we let you get back to the wars on Capitol Hills. He's only got like three hours sleep. What did Bill Clinton mean for Arkansas? You grew up on the other side of the aisle, but what did the president mean for your state? President Clinton grew up in a small town of Hope, which he made uh, famous and uh, came up through a hard scrabble life with uh, his family situation. 
he was a dynamic uh, leader as governor, and he gave a lot of pride to the uh, people of Arkansas because of uh, his uh, affection for the state and his uh, ability to uh, articulate a vision. Oh. Uh, so, you know, he still uh, comes back to his presidential library and uh, still makes a, 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 an, an occasion to, to bring good things back to Little Rock. And also, you know, happened to talk to Republicans every once in a while. <laughs> that would be good. Indeed. He worked well with Newt Gingrich in the House. French Hill, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. former governor of Indiana, out of Pennsylvania, graduate of Princeton University in Georgetown Law, Mitch Daniels. And of course, he's boiler up. You know him from Purdue University <laughs> right now. Uh, governor, what has been the biggest surprise of working at Purdue? It's, a, it's, it's moving from one bureaucracy to a whole different culture. What's been the biggest surprise? My uh, uh, facetious answer to that question is always the food. You wouldn't believe uh, the high quality of the food uh, young people are eating on our university uh, campuses these days mm-hmm. compared to anything uh, we, uh, we uh, yeah. older folks would remember. But the more serious uh, uh, answer, I suppose, is uh, to me was the balkanization of, uh, of a university like this um, the uh, extent to which the colleges that comprise it uh, have historically operated in their own uh, uh, stovepipe, so to say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, trying to bring about, there's a, there are virtues to that, but uh, also trying to bring about a measure of, of collective uh, uh, institutional uh, action uh, is, is, uh, is a challenge. But we're getting it done, and uh, we think uh, Purdue is moving forward on all fronts. I'm fascinated by your Kaplan acquisition, folks. This was the crown jewel of the Washington Post. Every parent knows that your kids are behind. you got to figure it out. They get tutored. They get tested at Kaplan uh, University. Is Kaplan University a threat to your professors? Is Kaplan University someone who's going to drive that $280 differential equation textbook down to something reasonable, like, say, $75? I don't think it's a threat. I think it's an important third dimension to Purdue's historic mission. We, uh, Purdue exists on two levels right now, the flagship uh, Research One, uh, world-renowned uh, world, uh, campus I'm uh, speaking to you from. But we also have regional campuses, which aim at a very different audience around Indiana, um, generally students who choose to or can't afford to move somewhere but want to live at home, probably work as, as they study. Kaplan, uh, uh, soon to be a, a third uh, uh, component of Purdue, uh, uh, serves a, a totally different uh, audience than the one our faculty here uh, works with. The yes. average student is well into her 30s, three-quarters of the time. It, uh, she, it is, a, it is a, a, a she and not a, not a man. Um, and um, they, they are much more focused, as they should be, on curriculum that aims directly uh, at the marketplace and helping somebody improve their their uh, economic circumstances in life. So, no, it's not a threat. Uh, I hope it's going to be a new emblem of pride. Uh, along the way, Purdue acquires capabilities we don't have and couldn't build. Uh, that is the, the, the state-of-the-art uh, the techniques for delivering education uh, digitally and online. But there's a cadence, and you, you had this, David Gurr had this, I had this, a cadence to our academics. The new cadence is give me the course load, let's go, i got to crunch through it, 
and take a test. That you know, I perceive Kaplan as being somewhat uh, like that. Twenty years from now, ten years from now, is that academic fall, winter, the spring term. When is homecoming? Is that all going to be gone? Can't say that it won't. My suspicion is that there will be a durability about the residential model. It'll depend on the ability of schools like ours to add value that cannot be replicated by the uh, even the uh, the most uh, stunning new technology. And we find, for instance, that. Uh, our, our faculty now, to achieve promotion and tenure, must demonstrate that in addition to scholarship and teaching, they have mentored or otherwise in, uh, spent personal uh, uh, time and effort in the growth of young people. Why? Because we know that that's associated yeah. with better outcomes later in life. Research, uh, in, uh, involvement in research is another good example, but the, the chore will be to stay ahead of online with, with uh uh, enrichments that are uh, that are unique to the residential experience, but you could be right. And uh, if that's the case, if online takes over, um, we want to be prepared to, to well, lead in it. Governor Daniels, thank you so much. He is a president of Purdue uh, University. We take interest in that. At Surveillance is our executive producer, the person that makes David's and my world <laughs> run each and every day. Learned a thing or two there. Rachel boilers up each and every day as a proud graduate of Mr. Daniels Purdue University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.